We have been journeying through the book of Matthew, and today we are in Matthew chapter 5, uh, looking at verses 38 through 48. Again, that is Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48. Uh, that can be found on page number 1503 of the Pew Bible. Hear the word of the Lord. Uh, Jesus, continuing to teach his disciples uh, on the mountain, says, You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. So my question this morning uh, to begin is simply, what is the goal of the Christian life? Once God opens our eyes to the beauty of Christ and the wonder of his forgiveness and grace and we receive his kingdom by faith, what should our goal be? As people who have been set apart by God, he's chosen us, he's purchased us out of slavery to sin and to death by the precious blood of Jesus. He's adopted us into his family. All of these wonderful things, all past tense now. What should the goal of our life be? And the answer to that question is simply to please him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 says, So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. So whether we're dead or whether we're alive, our goal as redeemed Christians is to please God. Why is that? Well, later in this same chapter, Paul says, And he died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So we no longer live for ourselves. As Christians, we are no longer slaves to our own passions. We're slaves now to righteousness, according to Paul in Romans chapter 6. Every earthly impulse inside us is telling us that we are supposed to live this life to please ourselves, doing what we want to do. 
doing what makes sense to us. But the Spirit of God is now inside of us, and and He is telling us that we are to live a life that pleases Him. And this is where most of our conflict and anxiety comes from, is the war inside us between the flesh and the Spirit. For those who have received the kingdom by faith and what Christ has done for us, we live to please Him because we now belong to Him. Which, of course, reminds us of the first question and answer to the Heidelberg Catechism. The question is, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer is that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And the goal of the Christian life is simply to please the God who made us his own through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Which is why the catechism answer ends this way. Because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and he makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Now that all sounds very nice, but uh, what does it look like? To live a life that that pleases God. Well, we've been talking about that as we've journeyed through the Sermon on the Mount. First, Jesus says that it looks like a life free of anger and full of peacemaking. It's a life free of lust and full of faithfulness. It's a life free of blasphemy and lying and full of honesty and integrity. But as I started to look at our passage for this morning, one thing I noticed is that all of those things, anger and lust and lying, those are all things that that a pagan would say. Hey, you know, a a life of honest, faithful peacemaking is the kind of life I want to live, too. But in our passage today, Jesus teaches us that a life that pleases God is, is more costly than we could ever Imagine, a life that pleases God is a life that chooses not to even fight for our rights. Which is, which as Americans is a hard thing to imagine. It is a life where we entrust everything to him. Including our dignity and our possessions. A life that pleases God is a life where we are free to love everyone, even our enemy, trusting that God will fight for us so that we do not have to. So first we're going to look at the radical nature of a life that pleases God, and then the reason to live a life that pleases God, and finally the motivation to live a life that pleases God. So first... The nature of a life that pleases God and how radical it is. Uh, There are many sayings from this passage that have made their way into uh, the English language. Um, Turn the other cheek, go the extra mile. And when Jesus uh, first said these words, he he meant something different by them than what I think we have come to imagine them to mean uh, in our English jargon. Uh, we, we may actually be guilty of doing what the Jews did, which is take these sayings and, and make them into something that, uh, that we uh, mean by them, as opposed to taking them in their original context. Uh, 
Remember, in this section in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus uses the, you have heard it said, but I tell you pattern, we've seen that there is an original command from the Old Testament that is good, but has been interpreted by the Jewish religious leaders to mean something less than God intended. And what Jesus does in every case is he takes the intent of the original command and then he provides the fulfillment of that command. So like last week we saw uh, the intention for uh, God's law about oath-taking was to promote truthfulness. And Jesus teaches us that the fulfillment of those laws is when we are the kind of people who no longer need to take oaths in order to be believed. We, we can simply say yes or no, and because of the strength of our character, people believe us simply by the words that come out of our mouth. And so in our passage this morning, we read this. He says, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. This was a law meant to be enforced by the judges of Israel. And the purpose of the law was to uh, keep a lid on escalating conflict. So if I took out your eye, uh, what would ordinarily happen is you would kill me. And then when you kill me, my family would go and kill you and your children. And then when my family went and killed you and your children, your tribe would come and declare war on my tribe and on and on it would go. And so God gave this law at a time where there were no prisons and the only way to make up for a crime was to charge someone a fine or to punish them with bodily injury or death. And this law gave the judges in Israel a clear and a fair formula for how to judge people and it kept things from escalating. So we could legitimately say that this was a law meant to establish peace and stability in society. Its purpose was so that people would trust God and the authorities that he put in place for justice rather than trying to take justice into their own hands. And so what ended up happening, though, was people began to demand justice under this law. They began to use the law courts in Israel to get as much revenge on somebody else as they possibly could. If he takes out my eye, I want his eye gone too. So instead of letting the law point them to forgiveness and peace, it actually ended up becoming the standard for revenge. But Jesus says, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Now clearly there are times when we ought to resist an evil person. If someone is tempting us to sin, we should resist that person. If someone is abusing us emotionally, psychologically, or physically, we should definitely resist that person. We must understand what Jesus is saying here in the context of our legal right to take revenge. Because every example that he gives after this is in the context of our legal right to take revenge. When Jesus says, do not resist an evil person, he's saying, do not exercise your right to take legal revenge. He goes on and he says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Now, most of the time when somebody slaps you, and I can't help but mention Chris Rock right now, because we all have this picture in our mind, right? They slap you with their right hand on the left cheek. And so you would turn this way. And so in order to be slapped on the right cheek, you have to be backhanded. And that is the profound insult. It's an insult even in our culture now. But back then, it was 
It was such an insult that you could sue somebody for it. It would be the equivalent in our culture of defamation of character. So Jesus is not saying, let yourself be physically assaulted. He's saying, don't fight for your reputation. It's okay. No one can actually take away your dignity if you are a child of God. You can trust God to guard your reputation. So you do not have to. Then he says, and if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Now here the NIV uh, is trying to help modern readers understand what Jesus is saying here. But you end up kind of missing uh, what Jesus is getting at. Uh, So that word shirt is, is really the tunic. And that word coat is really the cloak. And uh, back then there was two garments. They had the tunic and then they had the outer cloak. And, and no one could take a man's cloak. In fact, it was a divine right for a Jewish citizen to have their cloak. In Exodus, we're told this. Uh, if you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset, because that cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? Notice God doesn't say your neighbor has to fulfill his pledge in order to get his cloak back. God says, give him his cloak by sunset no matter what because he needs his cloak to keep warm at night. But Jesus says, if someone sues you for your tunic, to give that person your cloak as well. And since Jesus is talking to Jews and Matthew is writing to Jews, everyone in their audience would have immediately recognized the radical nature of what Jesus is saying here. He's saying it's better to be naked and cold at night than to exercise your legal right. Now this is similar to a couple weeks ago when Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to lust, gouge it out. Jesus was not literally saying we should gouge out our eye. He was saying, do whatever it takes not to pour fuel on the fire of lust inside your heart. And so here he's not saying that we should literally go around naked. He's saying if someone sues you for your possessions, don't resist them. You don't need to fight for your own property rights. You can trust God to fight for you. And then he says, if anyone forces you to go one mile... Go with them two miles. So at the time of Christ, a Roman soldier could enlist a Jewish citizen to carry their equipment for them for up to one Roman mile. And this was humiliating if you were a Jew because the Jews were under Roman oppression. And so when a Roman soldier would exercise their oppressor um, status on a Jewish person like that, it would be like pouring salt in the wound of the oppression. But Jesus says, you're actually free to go with your oppressor a second mile because your real king is Jesus, not the Romans. And you belong to him. And your goal is to please him. Finally, Jesus says, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, obviously taken to absurdity, this command would make it so that a homeless person could begin asking a rich man for all of his things, and the rich man would have to just continually give his things away until he had nothing. Jesus is not saying that we don't have a right to our possessions. 
He's saying, do not value them more than you value those who are in need. Now, with all these sayings, Jesus is not telling us that we should let ourselves be abused and taken advantage of. To to let someone take advantage of us would actually not be loving to them. So there is wisdom involved in applying Jesus' teaching here. Wisdom that should be directed by what Jesus will say later in verse 44, where he says, But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And so there's a balance here where Jesus is calling us to a radical trusting of God with our reputation, with our possessions. And at the same time, he's also calling us to love our enemy. And sometimes the most loving thing that we can do for our enemy is turn them in to the authorities so they can face the penalty for their actions. Jesus is saying here, like he has been the entire time on the Sermon on the Mount, he's trying to get to our heart. Is our heart a heart that is bitter and full of revenge? Or is our heart free to love our enemy and to trust God to contend for us, no matter what the personal cost? He's just telling us that we don't have to fight for our rights, our reputation, and our possession. At the end of the day, those things don't matter, and we can trust God to take care of us and to fight for us. Proverbs 20, 22 says it perfectly. Do not say, I'll pay you back for this wrong. Wait for the Lord, and he will avenge you. Now, what Jesus is saying here is for personal, individual application. This doesn't mean we don't fight for the rights of other people. God has put governments and law courts in place as one of the ways that he does avenge us. Romans 13, 4 says, For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. It is the rulers who are in authority. They are God's servants. So we are free not to worry about ourselves and our reputation and our stuff. We are free to love our enemy and pray for them. We are free of the need to fight for our rights. And we are free from the compulsion to hold on to bitterness and revenge. Jesus is saying we are free to love our enemy and pray for them because we can trust the justice of God. So what is the reason for us to live a life like this that pleases God? Well, the reason is pretty simple. I'm just going to tell you right in the beginning, and then, and then I'll show you it from the text. The reason is because this is what God is like. First, though, uh, let's look at the other Old Testament law that we're uh, looking at this morning. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, this one is interesting because the Jews have not only misinterpreted it, but they have fundamentally changed it and added to it. Leviticus 19, 18 says this, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So the Jews cut off the part about loving your neighbor as yourself, and then they added the part about hating your enemy. Now, some in our culture have tried to limit this command by saying, hey, look, I I can't love my enemy until I learn to love myself. But when Jesus says this, he actually assumes that we already love ourselves. 
And we do. We may not like how God has made us. We may wish we had different problems, different looks, different abilities, different circumstances, a different personality, but we love ourselves. We always do what we want. We always do what we think will make us feel good. And so to help the modern American reader understand this command, we might say, love your neighbor as much as you already love yourself. But the Jews, they limited it differently. They restricted the definition of neighbor so that their neighbor only included other Jews. And then they added the part about hating enemies. And nowhere in the Old Testament does God ever command his people to hate their enemies. And so the purpose of this law was to help the Israelites see that they were to love every human being made in God's image. So Jesus gives us the fulfillment of this command in verses 44 and 45 by saying this. He says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Now again, here the NIV sort of clouds a little bit what, uh, what Jesus is trying to communicate here. Uh, a literal translation of this would be that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. So in Jesus' culture, to be a son of your Father is to be like him in every way. A son was expected to follow in his Father's profession and reputation. And a son was the only one who was expected to be like their father. No one expected a daughter to be like their father. And so when Jesus is saying that citizens of his kingdom, both male and female citizens, are sons of the father, he's actually giving women a great honor by saying that they too may be sons of the father. Someone with the restraint to entrust God with their reputation and their property, and someone who loves their enemy and prays for them. Not just that they would no longer be their enemy, but really prays for their good and their blessing. That's the kind of thing that someone who is a son of the Father in heaven will do. And the reason we turn the other cheek and go the extra mile and love our enemy and pray for them is so that we may be what Jesus says we already are by faith, sons of our Father in heaven. Now, some have imported into this text additional reasons for such radical restraint and love for our enemies. Some have said that if we love our enemies and refuse to take revenge into our own hands, that that is the way to get them to apologize and to do the right thing. Or that that is the way to help our enemies see how evil their actions are. Some have said that we need to do this because if we do, our enemies will see God's love. That we choose not to retaliate and we choose to love our enemies and pray for them because that is what will lead them to coming to know Christ as Savior. And while some of these things may be the outcome of our refusing to take revenge into our own hands, and while we may legitimately hope for those things as an outcome, Jesus makes no promises here. We live like this with no expectation that living like this is going to achieve any particular goal other than it pleases God when his children bear the family resemblance. Because God loves his enemies. 
Anyone who has not repented of their sins and come to faith in Jesus Christ is an enemy of God. And yet God gives them common grace. The sun shines on their face and the rain falls on them too. And just so there's no question, Jesus goes on to say, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Sometimes we like to kid ourselves that we are more decent people than we actually are and that we love everyone. But, but most of us, most of the time, care about our family and our friends who love us back. And then there are some who love and care for the down and out and the destitute, which is commendable. But what Jesus is saying here is to truly be a son of the Father in heaven, we must set aside revenge and actually love our enemy and pray for them. Which begs the question, who is our enemy? And that's not a question that I could answer for, for every single one of us here, but let me give some examples. For some, it's the business partner who burned you. For others, it's the woke liberals or the fundamentalist conservatives. And for some, it's your spouse. Sometimes it's the people who are the closest to us, who fill us with the most anger and hatred. It's the people who are the closest to us that we think are keeping us from the life that we feel like we deserve. But God says you have the life that he has ordained for you and for your good. Therefore, love your enemy and pray for them. Finally, what is our motivation to live a life like this that pleases God? What could possibly motivate someone to stop fighting for their rights and their reputation and their possessions and to live a life loving their enemy and praying for them? And the answer to that question is really two things. One, our identity, and second, gratitude. So first, our identity. Our identity is who we are. So people who grow up with a rich cultural heritage, whether that's Italian, Irish, or Dutch, there's a certain sense of identity that comes from being connected to that heritage. It's, it's part of who we are. So, so if we grow up in those heritages, we, we walk into a room as a Dutchman or as an Irishman. Other people have a famous name. Imagine how different your life would be if your last name was Kennedy or Rockefeller. And just by virtue of coming from a certain family, you would feel confident and comfortable walking into a room. But God says that we belong to him. We have been adopted into his family. We are sons of our Father in heaven. We are heirs to his kingdom and all of his riches. Therefore, we do not need to seek revenge. We are free to live like Christ, who suffered the ultimate humiliation at the hands of the Jewish religious leaders and the Romans. He was beaten and mocked and spit on. Much more humiliating than being backhanded slapped. And yet he endured that humiliation without defending himself. He had all of his clothes taken from him and he was hung naked on a cross, literally. And then the Roman soldiers gambled over his clothes and divided them up. Yet he prayed for them. 
Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. He didn't just go the extra mile. He left his throne in heaven and humbled himself by taking on human flesh. He was born with every humiliating bodily reality that any human has. Umbilical cords, afterbirth, spit up, dirty diapers. And then he endured a lifetime of trials and temptations, never sinning, never seeking revenge, always loving his enemies. Paul in the book of Romans says, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. So even though we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. And he he wasn't in his human nature looking forward to it. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane so anxious that he was sweating blood and pleading with his father that there could be another way. But because he loved us, even though we were his enemies, he entrusted himself to God and laid down his life for us. The Apostle Peter says this, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And so it's hard for me to say exactly what it will look like in our individual lives to turn the other cheek and to go the extra mile and to give to those who ask of us. But if we look at the life of Christ and we see the radical nature of the Son of God and how he lived this out, he's certainly not calling us to any less of a degree of that radical nature. Because in Christ, we truly see what it is like to entrust ourselves to God and to love our enemies. In Christ, we see what it is to be a son of the Father. And through faith in Christ, we become sons of the Father. And he promises to make us like Jesus. And Jesus rode into Jerusalem that first Palm Sunday, knowing full well what was coming. But because of the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. And what was that joy? That joy was his love for us and that he would rescue us from our sin. This takes us back to Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, the theme verse of the book, right? He will save his people from their sin. And in his death on the cross, he forgives us grants us by faith his spirit that we might be transformed. So I said there were two things that motivate, motivate us to live a life like this that pleases God. First was our identity, which we just discussed, and the second is gratitude. The final verse of this passage is difficult to understand. Uh, the NIV translates it this way, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Which, if you've felt the weight of this whole passage so far, this is just like the, the, the crushing blow, right? How, how, can I, how can I be perfect? How can I do it? Well, ultimately, we, we must look to Christ for his perfection, right? He fulfilled all of the commands in this passage perfectly. And so our failure to fulfill them is only resolved by looking at him and receiving his righteousness in our place. 
But this, this command here is not just to crush us and to drive us to Christ. That's part of what he's doing here, but, but, he, but he's seriously commanding us to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And so as I thought about this this week, I, I, I wrestled with this one. How do I explain this? And here, here's what I noticed about this. That, that uh, and I'm going to get kind of nerdy right now, but that verb is the, is the verb to be. Right? Be perfect. And uh, for those of you grammar nerds out there, that is in the second person plural future indicative. Yeah, always wanted to say that from the pulpit. <laughs> Ordinarily, you would translate that you will be perfect. Which you wonder, okay, well, if it's in that tense, why do, why do the translators in almost every English translation translate it as a command to be perfect? Well, the reason is, is because we use routinely the second person future in order to communicate a command. So imagine a mom, she's home with her children, and she says, you will clean your room. Is that a command or a promise? It's both. You betcha. You betcha it's both, right? That mom is commanding that child to clean their room. But guess who's going to make sure it happens? Mom. And it's the same thing happening here. Jesus is commanding us to be perfect. But guess who's going to make it happen? God. God. The New King James translates this verse this way. Therefore, you shall be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So friends, this is both a command, but it's a promise. He promises to make us perfect. He promises to sanctify us. So as as we've walked through this passage this morning, I believe you felt two things. I believe you felt the the crushing failure to, to entrust your life to God so radically. But I also believe you felt a desire to be more like this. And so this last verse here is a promise. For all you who hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will, future, be satisfied. You shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that your law is so delightful. And that instead of being burdened by it, we are drawn to it by the power of your spirit. We're drawn to Christ in the forgiveness he offers us. And then we're drawn to you, to the Trinity, and your work of salvation in us. We thank you, Father, that our hope is to one day see you and be like you to never sin again. In the meantime, we cling to you as our only hope. In Jesus' name.